chapter number 6, and the first two verses, he says, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Father, we thank you that you have freed us from what we were in Adam. And that through your grace, we live in your son. Lord, I pray now you just uh, put in my mind what you want to say to the hearts of your men and that we would be willing, Lord, to yield ourselves to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So what shall we say then? Now, he's going back to chapter number five and he's saying, what are we going to say about all of this that we're now living where grace reigns? Um. He was anticipating some questions, obviously. And uh, the question is, uh, so uh, now that we live where grace reigns, what should we do about it? What should we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Now, I heard it said or read it somewhere, and I don't know if it was Luther or somebody uh, well-known, said that if you're not teaching Grace, in such a manner that someone asks this question, you're not teaching it correctly. And the tendency is for us to be afraid of it. Because what are we afraid of? We're afraid that if we teach too much grace, that people will go crazy, right? I mean, that's, that's the fear. We're afraid that they understand grace, that they'll take advantage of it, and they'll move from grace into a lascivious um, lifestyle. But God's grace triumphs over sin. And that's what he wanted us to realize. Was that what triumphs over your sin? Grace triumphs over your sin. You can't triumph over it in your own power or your own strength. But grace triumphs over your your sin. And grace overthrows the reign of sin. So that you have a, a different life. That's completely different than sin's life. Now religion fears the unconditional grace of God. And the danger is that, that, that we put conditions on the grace of God trying to control the behavior of people instead of liberating people to experience what God made them to be. Self-righteousness is the enemy of grace. Because whenever we look at ourselves and what we're able to do, then we become enemies of grace. The Pharisees were the separatists of their day and they built everything upon a self-righteousness. Here comes Jesus and he has grace. And I, I talk to people about this all the time. Can you find one scripture where Jesus was mad at a sinner? You can't. Now, when I say mad at a sinner, I mean what society called sinners. When they brought the woman who had been caught in the very act of adultery, was he angry at her? No, he had pity on her because she was in bondage. You'd see, and if you think about it, you go through the scripture, you never find Jesus angry at anybody but religious people. Why? Now, when I say religious people, I mean the fact that we're faithful in our service isn't what makes us religious, is it? We, we were people of a relationship, at least I hope, right? I mean, people ask me, what's your religion? I go, oh, I hate religion. Um... In the traditional sense, I said, I, I'm a follower of Jesus. Because following Jesus isn't about a, 
outward form. It's about a relationship that we have with him. Right? You know, that's, the, that's, that's our tradition, is that we have a tradition where we don't follow men, we follow f- or forms or rituals, we follow the person of Jesus Christ. And so all of our attempts at self-righteousness are going to rob that away. And so he says, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Now, it's interesting that the assumption was that everybody was in sin. And he said, but should we stay there? And then it's, it's really a good question. Is that where we're supposed to live? And he, you see, he answers it for us. He said, sin can't be the believer's residence. Continue in sin is an interesting phrase. Um, it, it comes from the Greek epimeno, and it means to reside. So shall we... Should we reside in sin that grace may increase? What's your residency? You know, I was talking to Jorge, and he's, he's uh, your permanent resident, right? Permanent resident. What does it mean? It means he lives with permanence in the United States. He has the rights to live there. And so what Paul is asking is, you know, where you lived when, before you met Jesus was sin. That was normal for you. That's, that, was your, that was your citizenship. You were tied to a sin nature. But now he's saying, listen, you have a new nature in Jesus Christ. So where's your permanent residence? Should your permanent residence be sin? Should sin be the norm for the Christian life? Should we continue there? He says, certainly not. Or he says, God forbid. I mean, you think of the strongest term possible, and that's what he was trying to emphasize. He's saying, listen, you as a believer aren't supposed to be live under the domain or under the reign of sin. It's just not supposed to be. It's completely contrary to who God has made you to be. May it never be that a Christian would live under the reign of sin. Jesus came to free us from sin, not to allow us to continue in it, Jesus came to give us life, an abundant life, or life more abundant. He's saying, listen, everything that Jesus came to give us was something that was greater, superior than the sin had brought to us. It's unthinkable for us to remain under the reign of sin. Sin is contrary to our new nature. If you think about it, that, that when we were born again, he took us out of Adam and placed us in Jesus Christ. And he gave us a new nature. Think about it. Is it 2 Corinthians 5.17? It says, therefore, if anyone be in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now, nature determines your behavior, doesn't it? How many of you have, what do you guys like, dogs or cats? Which one do you like better? Dogs, okay. So you were born like a cat, right? And cats are obnoxious, right? Self-willed, independent, rebellious against their masters. They have no masters, kind of like us in the world, right? We were self-willed. And uh, what noise do cats make? And, And sometimes they screech and it's just horrible. And, um, but why do they do it? Why do they meow? 
for attention because it's their nature. I mean, it's just simply their nature. Now, me, I prefer dogs. And dogs bark at intruders. How stupid could this game be? I mean, like a dog that barks at everything but intruders. I'm like, what are you going to have on there? Mother-in-law, you know? I, uh, you know? <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> but, you know, you have a dog and the dog barks. You, you say, don't bark, don't bark, don't bark. But what's the nature of the dog? To bark. Why does he do it? Now, suppose you had a cat and a cat said, you know, I would love to be a dog because dogs have the good life. You know? And so it said, now, if I could just stop meowing and start barking, then I could have the life of a dog. And so what's the first thing that cat's going to say? It's going to put all of its energy into not meowing. Right? Not, you know, oof. But it wants to meow because meowing is its nature, but it, you know, and uh, all, every, every time it's trying to not meow and trying to woof, it meow because that's its nature. Now, you know I'm going somewhere with this, right? <laughs> you hope enough. <laughs> uh, mooing doesn't make a cow a cow. And barking doesn't make a dog a dog or meowing a cat a cat. All of those behaviors come from the nature of what they are. And if you could get a cat to to bark, you'd just step back and go, what is wrong? There is some freak of nature. There is a cat that barks. Here's what Paul's laying out for us in this passage. What you were were sinners. It was your nature. When you were born again, you were given a new nature in Christ so that you have changed from being in Adam into the second Adam, into Jesus Christ, so that you're no longer sinners, but you're saints. And he's saying, listen, when you sin, it's as though you were a freak of nature like a cat barking or a dog meowing. He's saying you're living completely contrary to who Christ has made you to be. How shall we who died to sin live therein, live therein? I can't get my tongue to work. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? He's saying something happened that completely was transformative. It's of fundamental importance. It's unthinkable that you who died to sin, would live there any longer. Now, please be, be very careful to note, sin did not die. Who died? Nobody? Who died? Yeah, we're going to get there. You, you cheated and went way ahead. <laughs> we died. 
Sin doesn't die. Sin is alive and well. It's everywhere. It's enticing. But he's saying, listen. He said, how shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? There's a whole new relationship. Now, does die mean to cease to exist? When you die, when the physical body dies, you cease to exist? No. You continue to live, don't you? Your soul and your spirit are united together, and then one day you'll receive a glorified body. But you continue to exist. So when somebody dies, it doesn't mean you stop existing. And there's some frustration because sometimes we think, well, how come if I'm a new person and I died in Christ, how come then I continue to sin? Or is there still an appeal to sin? Well, because sin didn't die. He said, you died. And he said, and to have death simply means a new relationship. When the physical body dies, the soul and the spirit have a new relationship to the physical body or a change in relationship to the physical body. And so Paul's laying it out for us and he's saying, listen, death means a change in relationship. And Jesus died to sin how many times? One time. So we died to sin in Christ. Look at Colossians chapter number 2. Verse 20, he says, therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why is, O living in the world, do you subject yourselves to regulations? Now, dying to sin is not something we do. Dying to sin is something that's been done to us. It's something that's happened already. It is because of what has happened to us that we are now no longer to continue in sin. It is because of God's work that our continuing in sin is unthinkable. Our former master, cruel and destructive, it is to no longer be given place in our lives. We're supposed to be people who remember that we're free. We're remembering that we're people who have a brand new nature in Christ. And so he says to us in Colossians, if you died to these things, If you died with Christ, why are you trying to live with the the way of the world? And what was the way of the world? How does the the world control behavior? Laws. So he's saying, why are you living under the law systems? You're You're a people who live under a grace system where grace reigns. Colossians 3, 3 says, For you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Christ died not only for what we did. Christ died for who we were. You see, sometimes we put all the focus on the fact that he paid the penalty for all of our sins. And that's true. He did pay the penalty for all our sins. But he died for even something more important than that. He died for who we were as sinners in Adam. The changed relationship to sin is evidence of our death. You know, I mean, if there's no change in desire, then something's wrong. Then look at verse number three. It says, Know ye not that many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Now, we, we, we Baptists have a, a tradition of baptism by immersion because that's what the word means. And and. Water baptism is a beautiful picture of what happens to us spiritually. And the word, I just use the word immersed. 
Think about how much clearer it is. Know you not that so many of us as were immersed into Jesus Christ were immersed into his death? Doesn't that make it easier to understand? So that you and one that earlier in the, the, this morning I showed you if I put my pen inside the Bible, everything that happens to the Bible. And so Jesus in the great mystery takes our spirit, you know, because our physical body didn't die with him. Our soul didn't die with him, but our spirit, he takes our spirit, unites it to him so that what happens to him happens to us. And so he died, we died. He was buried, we were buried. He rose again, we rose again. He ascended into the heavens and we ascended with him. Don't you know, he's kind of like the idea in verse number three, know you not, don't you know that so many of us as were immersed into Jesus? Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so, we also, we also should walk in newness of life. And so he's saying, listen, there's a completely new life that goes with this completely new nature. What we were, were sinners, and so we sinned. Sinning didn't make us sinners. We sinned because we were sinners. Does it make sense? Just like barking never made a dog a dog, a dog barks because that's his nature. And he's saying, listen, now that you've been immersed into Christ, now that you have a new nature, now that uh, you've risen up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so, we also should walk in newness of life. And so there's a completely new life that pictures the life of the Christian. So somebody tell me, when you think of how Jesus walked and how he lived on earth, what did it look like? <laughs> it, will, it was completely strange for the society. But, but what was it? I mean, how would we identify it? What, would is, what is the newness in life look like? If we walked and we were risen with his life within us, what does that life look like? Perfection? Okay. I mean, I think of this. I think that what, what Jesus did was selfless. Everything he did was selfless. That's one of the things I think of. That, that everybody who was, who was downtrodden, everyone who was um, an outcast of society found Jesus to be a friend. I see that he, you know, when, when lepers in that society, uh, they had to stay so many feet away from everybody and they had to cry out, unclean, unclean. Think about what that would do to your identity. Oh, gosh, a horrible stigma. What did Jesus do to him? He walked up to him. You know, maybe that's people with AIDS today. You see what I'm, I'm, I guess I'm trying to get at, I'm trying to get you to say, what does the new life look like? It's not simply that we don't drink, don't dance, or we Baptists don't dance, you know. Don't drink, don't dance, don't smoke or chew or go with the girls who do. I'm not advocating any of those behaviors. I'm just saying you could be religious. I mean, Mormons don't do those things. But do they have newness of life? 
No, but they have religious behavior. But what made Jesus unique with the newness of life of Jesus was that Jesus was an advocate for people. He cared about people. He was selfless in his actions and his attitudes. He picked up the sinner. You know, he went to the sinner and he nurtured the sinner back. He never, he never beat a sinner that was down. And I'm saying that we need to kind of adjust our attitudes and begin to think, what does it mean? What does it look like for you and I as men, as fathers and husbands who have the newness of life? What does it look like? Or how do we know that we're experiencing it? He says that as many of us were baptized into Christ, so we were removed from Adam, we were placed into Jesus Christ. Um, it symbolizes, it speaks to our identity. And identity is an important truth. We have to know who God has made us to be because we can never really live out what, what we're supposed to be if we don't know who that is or what that is. And that it says that as many of us were baptized into Christ Jesus, we were immersed into Jesus Christ. It was a permanent act. The Spirit takes us and identifies us with all that Jesus did. And this is a, re a remarkable and an important truth that's crucial for us to learn. Our union with Christ is the truth from which everything else flows. So where do you get your identity? Who are you? You know, I, I think that it's important to stop and just reflect from time to time. Who am I? Who am I? Because maybe you're tempted to think, well, I am what I do in the sense of, well, um, who told me they were a machinist? Someone told me they're a machinist. Wait, you, Rick, you told me you're a machinist, right? Some of you guys are computer nerds. Um, which I mean is a term of a deep affection. Um, you know, that's a compliment. It's not a, you know, you're, you're in computers and, and, you know, whatever you do. But is that what, that occupation, is that your identity? And why is that important that it's not your identity? Because what happens if you can't do it anymore? See, what does Jesus want our identity to be? He wants our the core of our identity be to be those who are in him, the beloved of God. Um, and so we were baptized into his death. You know, and I think that we forget this, but death was a necessity because we needed to die. The only way that we could come back and have newness of life was to die. That old man, the man we were in Adam. And so then he continues, and therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death. We need to remember that that death was something that we all needed. And then that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father. Baptism is your public renunciation. Well, let me just say, this is how I define baptism. Baptism is your public renunciation of your past life and the profession of your new identification. It's why in Asia, I don't really ever count someone as really being truly born again until they're willing to be baptized in, in, in public, in a public environment. Now, 
are they born again with the moment they believe? Yes. Don't, don't, I'm not saying they're not. I just don't count it to be so until I see that there are willingness to be identified with Christ at all costs. Um, somebody I was talking to during one of the break time, free times, uh, I was talking about in, in India, now that there's so much persecution, we don't have a lot of false professions. You know, I mean, we can have these false professions of faith where, oh, well, I prayed a prayer, and then nothing changes in life. And I'm not saying that they quit drinking, quit smoking, quit... I, I'm saying there's no change, there's no desire. The, 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 the spirit hasn't come to life, and then they're there for a moment, and then they're gone, and we never see them again. And, but we've got them notched in our gun. Some of you know what I'm talking about. We have that, that background more than others. But baptism is in a place like India where they might come and beat you up or burn your house down. Or in Vietnam where you might get arrested for, for meeting in a house church. Those are all things that say, oh, I cannot deny it. I can't say, oh, I was just going to the meeting. And it was no different in the first century. And so this identity... It matters. It means something. He said, this is what it's about. That just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should walk now in newness of life. How can we walk in newness of life? First, by knowing that we have it. You see, if you want to think of the cat as the bad thing that you wanted to get away from and so you could finally be an English Mastiff or something like that... I'm not going to say a poodle or a, uh, what was it, Dotson, a miniature Dotson you have? Yeah, I'm like, because it's a group of men, you know. You know like, but, what's that? Yeah, yeah, you got the Mastiff, you know. But if you were a cat and all, all you ever wanted to do was an English Mastiff, you'd say, how can I do it? And the reality is you can't do it. You have to have a change of nature. And how can we live this newness life by first recognizing that we have a new nature? We have new life. And, and, and it is important the way that we live. It is important that our life reflects this new nature that we have in Christ. I think it was last year I talked to you about from Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 1 where he says, walk worthy. He says, I therefore the prisoner of the Lord... Beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you are called. He's saying, listen, remember who you are. And now live out who you are. Now look at verse number five with me. He says, for if you have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. He said, listen, the resurrection life of Jesus Christ is to be the model or the mode of how we live it's that power that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. <laughs> well, there's some things else that we have in there. He says that I may know him and the fellowship of his sufferings. And he's saying, listen, let me take you to the place where you can so identify with the sufferings of Jesus Christ that everything of that old nature that we learn from the old man is put aside. And then in verse number six, he says, knowing this, 
that our old man is crucified with him. I like the way the King James says it here. He says, knowing this. There's something that we have to know. And that's the old man is dead. He's crucified. Now you say, well, it says crucified, not dead. Did anyone ever live through a crucifixion? And I want to tell you something else that's pretty interesting to me. Crucifixion is the one form of death you can't do to yourself. Because sometimes we preachers will say, well, you know, you've got to die daily. And we go back to where Paul talked about, I die daily. But if you read that in his context, he wasn't talking about dying to the old man or even dying to himself. What he was talking about was he was in fear of literal physical death every day of his life. And if there was no resurrection, why in the world was he doing this? Because you can't crucify yourself. Maybe, maybe you could get yourself to lay down on the cross and maybe you could get the first spike pointed toward your toes. But do you really think that you could drive that first stake through your feet? I don't think so. But maybe you could do it. What are you going to do about your arms? You, 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 you just can't do it. And this is the beautiful thing. Jesus doesn't live it at the place where we would have to do it ourselves. He did it for us. He says, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. Here's the beauty of it. Sin used to reign over us. Sin used to be our master. We used to be bound by sin to where we couldn't say no to it. But in the scripture, he tells us now, that's not our master. You know, sometimes sin will feel, and temptation will feel so overwhelming that you're going to think, I don't have any choice in this. It's got such a pull on me. But this is the reality. Say, you've got to know that that old man and all of the behaviors that I so identify with the old man, that's not who you are anymore. And you have grace reigning over you. Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. In the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He's saying, listen, I am crucified. I don't crucify myself, but he did it for me. He crucified me. When he went to the cross, he took me there with him. I'm crucified with Christ, yet I live. Nevertheless, I live. The new me lives, not the old me. The old me died, but the new me, the one whose spirit has come to life, has come to life in Jesus Christ. I live, yet not I, the old me, not me, not who I used to be. That old man, he got crucified, not I, but Christ lives in me so that my spirit has come to life. And there's a whole new way of living. Colossians chapter 3, verse 9 and 10 says, Do not lie to one another since you have put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man who is renewing him, renewing in knowledge according to his image of him who created him. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 20 through 24, But you have not so learned Christ, if indeed you have heard him and taught been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off 
concerning your former conduct, the old man, which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holy. He's saying, listen, there's a putting off of the behaviors, but he's saying these are acts that have already been accomplished for us. The old man, he's dead. The phrase of put off and put on are the translations of Greek infinitives. It's not so much telling us to do something, but making a statement of fact about what has already been accomplished. Now he's saying, now live this way. Acknowledge it. Recognize it. He says, why? That the body of sin might be done away with. Done away with is the Greek, katargeo, uh, or geo, meaning to render inoperative. So here's what happens with sin. That the body of sin might be made inoperative. Our body of sin has been rendered powerless. The idea is, is of making something ineffective by removing it. So one commentator I read, he said it was similar to the idea of uh, to put out of business. And so what is the, the lesson for us? When sin comes to knocking at our door, we got to put out the sign that says out of business. Right? Because will sin still knock at your door? You better believe it. You say, well, you mean even an old guy like you? Yeah, even old guys like me. Larry, do you still have temptations? Old guys, even old guys like Larry. <laughs> Methuselah. We'll call him Methuselah. You see, you think, well, is there an age where I'm not going to be tempted? No. Sin's going to keep coming knocking. But you've put it to death in the sense that man, you, you've put that old man off. And you just have to hang out out of business sign. What was normal for you before is no longer the norm. That we should no longer be slaves of sin. And so I'm just going to say this, that if there's something in your life that is enslaving you, that's something that's contrary to your new nature, you have to renounce it. Just like if you heard a cat barking, you'd say, whoa, 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 that's a freak of nature. I just, I feel led to say this, that pornography is a problem in the church. And I, I'm not saying any of you are in it. I'm just saying I felt led like I needed to say this. Pornography like a lot of sexual sins, will enslave you. It'll get you a dog that's supposed to bark, or I should say as a Christian, who's supposed to be manifesting like acting and sounding like a freak of nature. And you've got to put that sign out that says, out of business, because it's enslaving you to live contrary to who God you go, well, how do you know? Uh, <clears throat> the statistics are stunning of how many people get involved in it. And it's completely contrary to who you are. And you say, well, how can I get free? Because every time I determine, I'll never look at it again. You have to remember who God made you to be.
stop looking at it as just a temptation that's got no, no victims and start looking at it like a freak of nature because that's what it is. And then verse 7 through 10, let me read through there quickly. And he says, For scarcely for a righteous man... I'm sorry, I skipped over to chapter 5. For he that is dead is freed from sin. Now, if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Do you believe that you're going to live with him? Do you believe that every day, moment by moment, you go through that life is about living out of the life of Jesus Christ? And knowing that Christ being raised from the dead dieth no more. How many times did Jesus have to die? He died once and he's saying, listen, death hath no more dominion over him. He conquered sin and death. And then for in that he died, he died unto sin once. But in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. And he's saying that's the model there for us. That's the opportunity that we have to live as those who have died to sin. And then in verse 11, he says a beautiful thing. He says, likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin. But alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. In verse number 6, what happened to the old man? The old man is crucified. The old man does not live. Now, that doesn't mean we don't have a flesh. The capacity to live self-centered lives. It doesn't mean that there isn't indwelling sin in us. It doesn't mean you don't have the capacity to sin. It means that old nature, that who you were in Adam has been severed. And then in verse number 11, he gives us the key to walking victoriously. And he says, reckon yourselves dead indeed. Not kill yourself again because you've already been killed, but do the math. That's what reckoning is, is a, is a math term, right? You're in banking. Does your bank reconcile the accounts? Every day, probably, right? Every day they reconcile the, 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 the books. Uh, the cashiers reconcile their drawers. Uh, every month they reconcile the, the, the ledgers. Every year they reconcile, they have an audit. And what he's saying is, listen, you're going through life. Moment by moment, what do you need to do on a daily basis? You need to reckon. You need to take out the ledger. I was a sinner. Sin was natural for me. I sure did plenty of sinning. I met Jesus. I put my faith in Jesus, and Jesus saved my soul. And he gave me a completely new nature. And I died to sin. I was buried, and I rose again. I died to sin. Think about it. It doesn't mean sin died. It didn't mean you don't have the capacity. He's saying you have a whole new relationship to sin because you have a whole new nature. He says, reckon yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin. Reckon it. Whatever has uh, been enslaving you, whatever you yield yourself to will enslave you. He said then, Reckon yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God. So don't just stop with this negative, the sin, but reckon yourselves alive unto God. When sin comes and it tempts you, force yourself to look, to put your eyes back on Jesus so that sin will not reign in your body any longer. 
Father, I pray that uh, you would take the words of your scripture and make it uh, make a powerful impact on the lives of each one of these men. Lord, we confess that in you we've reckoned ourselves. We reckon ourselves dead indeed to sin, but alive unto God. And that's our heart's desire to be men, fathers, husbands, who experience the newness in life, no longer slaves to sin. We thank you for what you did in taking us to the cross and into the grave and raising us again and now having us seated at the right hand of the Father in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.